As a chef, I find that there are endless possibilities for creating a delicious meal, but the real challenge for me has always been finding ways to make amazing meals while also being very health conscious. And even more challenging is carving out the time after a busy day to slow down and cook a good meal. That's where Blue Apron comes in. Blue Apron is a meal kit service that delivers right to your door with all the ingredients and instructions you need to make a satisfying, healthy meal at home. So you can skip the grocery store run this time. I've partnered with Blue Apron to create an exclusive menu based around lean proteins, whole grains, minimal dairy, and tons of flavor-packed produce. Choose from a variety of chef-designed, ready-to-cook meals that range from plant-forward to vegetarian, from carb-conscious to Mediterranean. To kick off the new year on the right foot, check out this week's menu and get $60 off when you visit blueapron.com slash goopfellas. That's blueapron.com slash goopfellas. What's up, Seamus? Hey, Will. Welcome to New York. Well, we've been here for a little while. <laughs> Have you been working out since you... Well, you just got in this morning, right? Yeah, I got in this morning. I did not work out today. My workout was walking around New York City. That's a good workout. I, I mean, I dig that. You've been on the road for for your book tour. How are you How are you balancing that? Are you getting in exercise while you're on the road? Yeah, I am. I, I'm used to hotel workouts, so I'll do uh-huh. like a easy like 15, 20-minute burst training in the room where the it's... Uh, you don't need much space, which uh-huh. is a circuit of different body weight exercises. Or if there's a decent gym in the hotel, I'll do it there too. Uh-huh. And New York's nice because you do walk. I normally will walk. If I can walk like 20, 30 minutes, I'll yeah. walk and do it that way. We um, we just had Harley Pasternak on the podcast. Really interesting conversation. Yeah. Coming from somebody who's known, he's a celebrity trainer, uh, nutritionist. He's trained pretty much every major celebrity you can mm-hmm. think of to prepare for roles generally. Um, but one of the things that my biggest takeaway from this is that he is a huge advocate for walking. That's like the, s- the simplest thing we can do and just to walk more. So let's jump in. We're going to jump into the conversation with Harley Pasternak. Thanks so much for joining us on Goop, fellas. Thanks for having me. So you train, basically, for people that don't know, you train all of Hollywood, I think. Um, <laughs> you are the author of multiple best-selling books, uh, like The Body Reset Diet, which we'll get into. Uh, and you basically design the fitness centers for all Four Seasons resorts. Is that right? As well? Yeah. I'm the global fitness director or advisor. I don't know what the title is for the uh, all the Four Seasons hotels, residences around the world. I curate so, and procure all their fitness centers. Awesome. So you do awesome things. Plus, more than anything, you are Canadian, which makes you <laughs> pretty cool in our some book. of the best people in the world. Thank you. So tell everybody how you got started. Like, What was the genesis of where you came from? Can, can I ask how old you guys are? I'm 34. Six? You're 36. 36, I look 18. Yeah, I'm 45. I look 18 as well. So I'm a lot younger than you guys. (laughs) Way younger. Uh, So we kind of grew up around the same time. And we grew up in the era I called the Reagan era, where we all worshiped this this ideal male physique. You know, every leading guy in Hollywood was a massive, muscular superhero of some kind. Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Van Damme. Right. So I kind of grew up during that era, as as we all did, mm-hmm. and was a hockey player in Canada, and played at a pretty high level, and got into the working out to put on weight for hockey, and uh, eventually in college got hurt playing hockey, and focused more on the academics, and spent ten years in university doing degrees in exercise science and nutritional science, and I was working towards my PhD um, when I got recruited by the military to work at the DCIEM, the Defense and Civil Institute of Environmental Medicine, which is kind of 
they nicknamed it the superhuman lab. Uh-huh. So we came up with drugs and foods to make soldiers run faster, jump higher, and stay awake longer. So I worked mm. for three years um, as a nutrition scientist for the military, and it was a very cool period of life. And as I did that, you had to make money somehow. So I started a personal training business and I catered to all the Hollywood actors that would come to Canada to shoot films. And you were in Toronto at the time? Yeah, I was based in Toronto. And what, um, more or less, what time frame is this? Like late, early 90s or so? When, when are we? This is 1993. Got it. Yeah, around 93, 94. Uh-huh. And so I started training all these these Hollywood actors that would come to shoot films. And as many people know, or maybe don't know, most Hollywood films are actually not shot in Hollywood. Most of them are actually shot in Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. So it was a really cool opportunity to to work with uh, actors, Jim Caviezel, um, to train him to be Jesus, and Halle mm-hmm. Berry to be Catwoman, and uh, uh, Seth Rogen to be Green Hornet, and Tobey Maguire to be Spider-Man. And then eventually I got a phone call from the producer of a film called Gothica. Robert Downey Jr. is out of jail. It's his first film back. We want you to work with him mm-hmm. and Halle Berry uh, to work with her. And I just dropped what I was doing, took a leave from from graduate school, finished my master's degree, took a leave from my pursuit of my PhD. And I said, I'll be back in three months. And two workouts in, Halle said, will you come back to LA with me after this film and help me get ready for Catwoman? And then I went on Oprah and then I never went back. Wow. Wow. So when you are seeing clients, you still, do you see clients still today or, or no? Every single day I try and see three clients. That's oh, awesome. Wow. My, my team sees most of them, but I, it's who I am and I will yeah. always see clients. Yeah. yeah. That's the same with me as a functional medicine practitioner. It keeps me sharp, like seeing patients. It's probably the same for you. Yeah, you get dull. I mean, I went through a period of probably three or four years where I really didn't see many clients. And I think it hurt. It hurt not just my skills, as you just mentioned for your practice, but mm-hmm. um, who I am. I can't, you kind of, it's like, you're, it's very grounding. Yeah. You know, even Vidal Sassoon, I think, still cut hair right. all the way through. Yeah, it's like art and the craft. No, we, I'm, I'm a chef and we always, we can call it keeping your hands in the salt and pepper. You got to kind of always it. still be in it because if you don't, that your identity is so closely tied to that daily activity. I, see, I saw Matsuhisa the other day at Nobu. Uh-huh. He, st- he still prepares food every yep. single day. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. So for us average folk, maybe that aren't in Hollywood, they're not like ripped up Hollywood actors, but what's the average person? What are we doing wrong when it comes to exercise besides you know not doing it? But Yeah, I think people are doing it too much, too quickly, too intensely. And the focus is too much on the workout. And there's 168 hours in the week. And if you're working out for 45 minutes every other day, you're not working out 165 of those 168 hours. And it's what you do during that time that is way more impactful Mm -hmm. than those 45 Mm -hmm. minute workouts every other day. And we really, we prioritize the workout too much. I'm not saying we don't need to work out. It's important. It's, it's essential, but yeah but it's only one part of the puzzle and it's a small part of the puzzle. Okay. I think most people are, are shocked when they realize that working out is probably not the best way to lose weight. And and you know the idea of like I'm going to go and just work out but then I'm going to I'm going to eat like shit the rest of the week or I'm not going to or or working out is like a a way of zeroing out bad choices around food 
and we don't really realize that it's it's important because it does foster <clears throat> really good habits and it's very good for our body. But it, as you said, like it is only a, a piece of the puzzle. I tell people you get lean in life and strong in the gym. Mm-hmm. No one's That's losing good. weight from the gym. Right. That's good. And, and all those people that do what, what I call contrived cardio, spin classes and boot camps and uh, and high-low aerobic classes, it's social, it's great. I'm, I would never tell them not to, but those are forms of socialization. Mm-hmm. And at the end of those, they're hungry. Right. And at the end of a month of those, they're injured. And... <laughs> If you took all the time that you spent driving to do that class, getting to your favorite bike, doing that class, leaving, and you took all that time, instead you just went for a walk and returned calls to friends you haven't spoken to for a while, you would probably lose more weight, burn more calories, a larger percentage of those calories from fat, not have inflammation and not get hurt, and it cost you nothing mm-hmm. um, than, than doing them. Yeah, so would you say in your experience that food is a bigger modulator of someone's weight and health over exercise? It depends who, you know, if you're someone who's eating excellent and you're sedentary, then 100% of the change in your diet and your life is going to be from, from moving your body more. If you're Mm -hmm. someone who, who's, who's really active and hits 20,000 steps every single day and eats like crap, 100% of changing is. So I I think it really depends who, I think they're both essential. It's like, you know, What's more important to a tree, air, water, or sun? <laughs> right, right. You, you right. need them all. Oh, for sure. Do you think, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, because you just mentioned hitting 20,000 steps. How much does this idea of quantifying our movement and our obsession with tracking, do you think this is good? Is it bad? Or what can we learn from it? And what is it? I mean, obviously, if you're, you're wearing a Fitbit or you're wearing a tracker and you're aware of maybe you're monitoring your sleep. I mean, I, I monitor my sleep, for instance. I don't really worry about my movement as much. Um, but then what do you do with that information and how, it, how, how helpful is it to actually achieving your goals? I think you just hit the, the hammer on the nail or vice versa. It, it, what do you do with the information? Information's great, mm-hmm. but, but what's the point of it? So I think everyone's different. I think I, I respond very well to empirical daily goals. Mm-hmm. And so rather, I've never owned a scale. I've never weighed a client. I've never done a bad body fat test on a client. I, I think all of that is so superfluous, uh, to the end result. I think it's all about the process. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I make the process empirical. And every single day before my clients go to bed, they send me an email. And the email has four questions on it. Uh-huh. Yes or no. Did you hit your step goal today? Yes. Did you hit your sleep goal today? Yes. Did you unplug from your phone at least an hour today? Yes. And did you hit your food goals today? Yes. To the extent that they can answer yes to those, uh-huh. they can go to bed smiling. They know that everything that they have direct control over, they have done. And mm-hmm. as a byproduct of the process of doing those things on a daily basis, as a byproduct, they'll lose body fat, they'll feel great, they'll look great. And so that's the main reason we use the data. Got it. And obviously everybody's different, but if you had to pick in your <clears throat> experience, what would you say is the most effective like full body workout, what would, what would you recommend someone to do? Well, when we say workout, you know, it's, it's this kind of generic word. What, mm-hmm. what does it mean to work out? Right. Yeah. Is work, does workout mean resistance exercise? Does it mean cardio? Um, for me, working out is almost always resistance exercise. I don't use the word cardio. I use the word mm-hmm. steps. 
Okay. And so steps is a combination of what you do throughout the day, N-E-A-T, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, mm -hmm. everything from gardening, walking to get your coffee, brushing your teeth, just anything you move your body counts towards that daily step goal. And if it happens to include running on a treadmill, then that is a combination of it, but you don't have to. When I think of workouts, I talk about resistance exercise. So I don't, there's no such thing as a whole body resistance exercise unless you are doing several exercises that address all the different muscles of the body, in mm -hmm. which case, you know, I, I think the focus should be creating this balance, hitting a daily step goal. Ideally, you do not need a workout to hit that daily step goal. Your life is active enough that you do not need to go to a building in a room designed to sweat, on a machine designed to sweat, in clothing designed to sweat in, you don't need to do those in a perfect world. Right. Yeah, because we kind of compartmentalize this whole idea that you've, you've checked that off, you're, you've done 45 minutes of cardio and now you're done, you can go about your sedentary life. Exactly. And so you've got another 23 hours and 15 minutes that day. Let's say in a perfect world, you sleep for seven and a half of those. What are you going to do the rest? You're going to sit still? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And then it's obviously you have... The Body Reset Diet, um, best-selling book. For people that don't know about The Body Reset Diet, what's the premise behind it? What is it? You know, it's a book I wrote that I struggled with at first because I'm such a purist when it comes to messaging and moderation and sustainability and, and balance. And, and I lost people's attention for a short while because of the sensational promises from mm -hmm. Dr. Oz or from, you know, the, the cover of lose five pounds in five days, do mm -hmm. a cleanse, a fast. And you're never going to find somebody who has a university degree in nutrition advise anybody to do a cleanse or a fast ever in a million years. Mm -hmm. But I thought, okay, if you can't beat them, join them. How do I make them think like this is a cleanse or a fast or any of those things, but really it's not at all. Mm -hmm. And so during a time when people are juicing, which I think is one of the worst things you can ever do to your body in a trillion years. And and the worst thing you can do to the environment. I mean, those poor vegetables, what did it take to grow them? You're gonna squeeze the water out of them and throw out the vegetables? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it, it comes off looking like a juice cleanse, but it's obviously, it's quite the opposite. So it's based on three phases. <laughs> Phase one, you have three smoothies a day and two crunchy snacks. Breakfast is a white smoothie. I call it an apple pie smoothie, but it's not juice. It's actually real food. You just mm -hmm. happen to put it in a blender. So the number one reason people give for not eating healthy is they don't have time. So if you take that element away, it takes 90 seconds to make this smoothie in the morning and you can take it and go. You've eliminated the number one excuse that they're not eating breakfast because they don't have time. So what's in, what's in the smoothie? Uh, we have 20 different white smoothies, but the, the main one that I like has one and a half apples with the skin. Mm -hmm. um, it has a palm full of almonds. It has a pinch of cinnamon. It has a cup and a half of plain strained yogurt, whether it be Icelandic or Greek. And it has anywhere from half to a, a full frozen banana. And it has milk, whatever milk it is that you use uh, as a liquid base. Mm -hmm. um, and that's it. So it has, it's really high in calcium, really high in vitamin D, um, two different protein sources in whey and in casein. It's filling, it's delicious, and, and it's, it, it, you, you've started your day with, with all the things you need, protein, fiber, and healthy fat. Mm -hmm. And then mid-morning, you have a snack, and, and the snack, again, is usually a protein and a fiber or a protein and a fat. So let's say it's some edamame 
as an example. I'm just mm-hmm. throwing it out there. And then lunch is the red smoothie, my berry cobbler smoothie, which is, and I get, you'll have to forgive me because I haven't looked up the recipes in a while, but it's, uh, it's berries. It's mm-hmm. a mix of blackberries and raspberries. Um, I, ideally, I tell people to use frozen berries mm-hmm. just because fresh ones spoil so quickly. Um, and the frozen ones are flash frozen when they're picked. And so they haven't been, been exposed to air or contact or bacteria and, and they just taste yummy in a smoothie when they're frozen. It has a, an orange without the skin. I use uh, two spoonfuls of, uh, of uh, protein powder. I use mm-hmm. whey. I use a, a grass-fed whey from Northern California. And it has flax seeds. And that's it. So you're not anti-fruit. Because a lot of people are anti-fruit when trying to reduce sugar. I'm not, I'm not anti-fruit. I'm, it depends what fruit and when and how much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the person, and, yeah, probably. And the person. Yeah, yeah exactly. So... So uh, when it comes to snacking time, I tell people to stick to fruits that have either edible skin or edible seeds or citrus. So minimize tropical fruits, mm-hmm. minimize melon, mm-hmm. you know, when you're eating them on your own. But when you're putting them in a smoothie and you're combining them with protein and you're combining them with fats, y- the glycemic load of that meal is completely blunted. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you have an afternoon snack and the afternoon snack could be a, a cut, some cut veggies with a hummus. And then uh, dinner is a green smoothie. And the green smoothie, um, let's see, it's tons of spinach, avocado, lime, a palm full of frozen green grapes, uh, some strained yogurt again, and water. We're going to take a quick break. Cooking is my passion, my stress relief, and a huge source of joy, whether shared with loved ones or just me alone at the stove. Blue Apron also believes cooking should be enjoyed, not dreaded. And they believe a healthy lifestyle starts with a balanced relationship with food. I recently got to sit down with the head chef of Blue Apron, Chef John Adler, who's someone I totally admire. We talked about ways to make cooking easier and more interesting for the home chef. And I wanted to share a little piece of our conversation with you today. After you listen to get started with this week's menu and get $60 off your order, visit blueapron.com slash goopfellas. That's blueapron.com slash goopfellas. Okay, let's get to John. Over half our menu takes 30 minutes or less to prepare. So it's not the uh, – it's really not the act in the kitchen. It's the mm-hmm. mental I am going to plan to cook on this night and this is something that actually cuts out everything baked into, you know, getting into the kitchen, which is mm-hmm. the shopping and the, and the measuring and everything else. So I think that the, the thing that people – what generally gets in people's way is the planning, not yeah. the act. Yeah, it's really funny if you think about it. Okay, so uh, the average Blue Apron recipe takes you, what, 25, 30 minutes to make, more or less, give or take. And the average seamless delivery is going to take you, at at best, 30 minutes to get. And going out to dinner in a restaurant is probably, at minimum, an hour to an hour and a half experience. So if you kind of reframe it from that perspective – Cooking becomes much more quick and much more efficient, and you have you have control over what you're eating, and you have control over your ingredients, and you're it's a it's um it's a really interesting way of reframing it and thinking about well actually obviously I have time to cook. Yeah, I think I think that you you know I think when you also when you reframe it and then you bake in the ancillary parts of it. So mm-hmm. there's no part of cooking that's going to replace the act of somebody bringing you a glass of wine, and 
feeling that maybe you're in, you know, uh, signing up for an elevated hospitality experience in a right. restaurant. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, that was something that as chefs, you and I both worked on a lot when we mm -hmm. when we opened our restaurants. Um, so there's that. But I think that there's the other part of cooking that people don't ever measure, which is that sense of accomplishment, the sense of yeah. satisfaction, the connection that you build either with the person you're cooking with or the person you're cooking for. And I think that that's something that if people I, – I don't know that people can um, quantify the value of that. Uh -huh. But I know that you we hear from customers, you know, this brings us together at the end of the day. Or yeah. we're both so busy, but three nights a week we're committed to each other. And, you know, we, we heard a you – know, we've heard some, some gut-wrenching stories about people using – Cooking as a way to recover from sickness, loss, you know, heartache, mm -hmm. um, even a way to engage uh, children with with learning or developmental disabilities or delays, and and it's really it's really powerful when you understand that you work in a medium mm -hmm. that creates benefit for people in in really intangible but really meaningful and lasting ways. No, it totally becomes this kind of this this glue or this fabric that holds community together and, and becomes a source of joy. And I, I love that. I love that that notion of creating, I mean, essentially what you're doing, and which is what I makes me such a big fan of Blue Apron, is that you're creating a, an environment in which, and a system that makes it easier for people to have those experiences. And I, I think it's great. Thank you. And, and you know, it's, it's something that we spend a lot of time on. And I think, you know, we, as a as a chef, you often hear what isn't on the plate is what's most important, mm -hmm. um, right? Like where do you where do you leave your ego out of it and let the ingredient right. speak for itself? And I think one of the most important things as a company is where, what do we not put into the recipe? What do we not guide in the experience mm -hmm. that where someone can take ownership of it and make it their own and make it something that maybe have a moment to take a step back from and say, I did that. I made that choice. Um, this is just the way I like it, and and really empower empower their control in the kitchen in a way that is that they can that they can carry forward. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Harley. So then you go from phase one where you're having three smoothies, phase two, then you go down to two smoothies and you're yep. bringing in what you call like a, a single meal, right? Like an omelet or a salad. And the the premise of that is basically people to be mindful of the amount of foods they're eating, right? So portion control. Exactly. So this is me weaning people onto eating properly, three meals and two snacks a day. Uh, yeah. And, and so, and doing it in a really time efficient way and getting all the nutrients they need. And phase two, we drop, like you said, we, one of the, the smoothies and have an S meal. S means single dish, a simple solid. So it's salads, sandwiches, scrambles, soups, stir fries, or sushi. Uh -huh. And then phase three, we drop yet another smoothie. So you're having one blended meal a day two regular meals and two snacks, and you just keep going. Yeah. I read uh, a lot of stuff about the, the book. I think it's great because you're getting people to eat real foods, like foods from the earth, uh, in a way, like you said, most people are like, I don't have time, but like smoothies are super simple and they taste good too. I, I think it's really smart. How long do you suggest people go on to this program for? So it, everyone's different. You know, if you're someone who wants to rip the Band-Aid off. And you're mm -hmm. like, I just need results really, really right now. I don't want to think about food. I just want, it's simple. It, this is a means to an end. You're someone who's, let me start on phase one. Let me go to phase two. And some people stand phase two indefinitely. They love the idea of just having to have one normal meal a day 
with their family at the end of the day or socializing, going out with their friends at night and having that regular meal. And during the day, they just have a smooth, two smoothies and two snacks and, and life is simple. Some mm -hmm. people start on phase three mm -hmm. and they love the structure of just, you know, having a smoothie for breakfast and, and having a salad lunch and having a, a stir fry with dinner and a snack in between. So everyone's different, know yourself. I'm more of a phase two guy. I was never a phase one guy myself, but some people are. Yeah, I'm curious about your thoughts on the ketogenic diet. I just like full candor. I I wrote a mostly plant-based ketogenic book called Ketotarian. I am I recommend more of a cyclical approach. Not everybody has to be in ketosis all the time. Um, so you won't hurt my feelings. I want to hear the truth, <laughs> the real truth from Harley. What sure. do you think of the keto diet? I think every single diet works. Almost every single diet. I've been doing this for this is my 27th year in practice whether it be keto, whether it be certain versions of intermittent fasting, whether it be Atkins, whether it be Pritikin, whether it be Zone, whether it be South Beach, whether it be Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, I have seen people be successful on every single diet for a period of time. The degree to which the diet is difficult to follow will determine how long someone will continue to do it mm -hmm. and how much refraction period there is afterwards where they're like, the hell with this. I just need to go back to being happy, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. I think keto is the most difficult of all of the eating plans to follow because of humans preferring carbohydrate as an energy source. Mm -hmm. um, sugar is the only energy source to cross the blood-brain barrier, as you know. I think it takes a very strong-willed person to do keto. I cannot do keto personally. People who do keto it and do it, do it well, and uh, it tends to define them. I was mm -hmm. yesterday uh, in Venice and I saw someone with a um, license plate that said, I do keto. <laughs> and I walked up to yeah. her and I said, are you in the food business or anything? She's like, no, 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 I just, I love keto. I've been doing it for six months. And, and it's interesting, a lot of people do keto, it becomes their cultish. identity, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's your entire identity. And yeah. so for me, coming from the world where I deal with so many people with eating disorders, I, I have an issue with people identifying so much about one form of extreme eating and it right. defines them. So look, I, I would never knock anyone who finds success within an eating plan. Mm -hmm. If it makes you happy and healthy, don't change it and mm -hmm. celebrate it and good for you. But for me, keto is not for me and it's not something that I teach my clients. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. I, I see that as well. The tribalism that goes on. That, that's part of the pushback I got with Ketotarian was I wasn't a hardliner and I talked about how using it as a tool to gain metabolic flexibility, but then cycle in and out of it. You don't always have to be in ketosis. So I, I definitely see where, where you're coming from. And would you say, would you agree have similar thoughts on the carnivore diet and what's going on with the tribalism and, and what do you recommend people to try that out or no? I think, I think we've, we've, we're in a really weird place food wise. Um, I used to have every single nutrition book that comes out yeah. in my office. I, I got to about 700 and people stopped buying books and started being eBooks. And then I moved offices and I got rid of them all. But there was at one point where every fad diet that came out I had, I had the cookie diet, the cabbage soup diet, the lemon drop diet, I had every mm -hmm. single diet book there was. We're in a weird place now because it's, it's, it's kind of like politics. Everything's so extreme yeah. in both ways. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's extreme uh, veganism today. 
you know, let's protect the environment and animals are people too. And on the other hand, it's extreme carnivorism today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, eat like a caveman, you know, and if you see an animal walking down the street, bite it, eat it. <laughs> and, and so today we have these extremes more than ever because yeah. it's interesting. The story of moderation is boring. Yeah. It's so boring for me to walk and tell people about sustainability and moderation and balance and pick a way to eat that you see yourself being able to stick to forever. Like mm -hmm. how, how, what, what does that look like for you? Do you see that playing out as well in, in the world of fitness in terms of movement? Because it feels like, I mean, there's, there's been an explosion in the past 10 years of boutique fitness. Um, I think CrossFit had a lot to do with it in creating a community that where we didn't feel like we we're just working out in isolation in a gym, like hamsters on a, on a wheel. But now from that, obviously born out of that, there's been proliferation of bar classes and, and spin studios and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do we, do you, do you see the same sort of thing where there's, there's that kind of like tribalism around? Oh, fitness? wow. Yeah. Wow. hundred percent. And I think CrossFit was the, the breaking point. I love case studies. Uh -huh. I love looking at what's happening in the world right now. Forget about this idea and that radical idea and this eating this and this and this exercise thing. Who is healthy in the world? What are mm -hmm. they doing? Right. So I took a year off my practice seven years ago. Uh -huh. And I traveled to the 10 healthiest countries in the world for I took almost a year off. And I spent time in Japan and I spent time in Sweden. I spent time in South Korea and I spent time in Spain. And what are they doing? What, what ingredients do they use? How do they cook? How do they eat their food? How do they burn their calories? None of them are doing any of these. None of them are doing CrossFit or keto or fasting. Any of these, they <laughs> all eat carbohydrates. Yeah. The people with the lowest diabetes, lowest heart disease, longest lifespan in the world, all have carbohydrate-based diets, all of them, every single one of them. And 80% of those countries have heavily dairy-based diets. Right. And here we are in the US, probably the most unhealthy country in the world, with these, these really extreme views on dairy and on carbohydrates and on exercise whatever these views are and whatever we're doing, it's not working. So yeah, let's take, let's yeah. take a look what's working in the rest of the world. But we can't, you can't like, hen I think this is something that we do a lot where we like henpick these ideas and say, okay, well the Mediterranean diet or, you know, there, there's, you know, in Greece they're eating anchovies and, and rosemary. So let's just make sure we're eating more anchovies and rosemary so we can live to be 110 years old. You can't just sort of decide what elements and then try to supplant them into the American lifestyle because there's so many. I lived in Spain for seven years, and one of the things that blew me away about Spain is that, um, you know, the majority of the calories are eaten in the early afternoon. Yep. And universally people go out and walk together. First of all, they eat together as a family and then they walk after after their meal. So those two elements in and of themselves, you could actually be eating anything. If you try to take exactly what they're eating and supplant it into the United States, but don't incorporate the idea of eating together and walking, you, you're not gonna reap the same benefits. You're a hundred percent, I could not agree with you more, which is why when the China study came out and everyone said, oh, everyone, you know, just just eat like the Chinese people do, yeah. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. There's way more, there's more variables. That's right. why when I wrote The World Diet, instead of finding out like, what does one country do? I said, what do these 10 countries have in common? The 10 healthiest countries in the world, what do they have in common? Not what are each one of them doing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that all 10 of them have in common is they walked 11,000 steps a day on average, while Americans walked 4,200 steps mm -hmm. a day. Mm -hmm. So forget about what they're eating. They're moving two and a half times more per day than we are every day of their life. Right. Mm -hmm. if, if that alone is not enough information, and it's not running, and it's not crossfitting, and it's not bar methoding, 
they're walking. And right. like you said, they're walking with their family after dinner. Right. Yeah. yeah. That social element, I think, is so important. And I, and I do think that we crave that, which is part of the reason why this boutique fitness has been so successful because, you know, people go to SoulCycle and then afterwards they, they socialize and they have a cup of coffee together and it becomes their community. Yeah. And I, I think that we know we're kind of longing for that. But it it is very different to create sort of artificially create that rather than to have that baked into our culture. Yeah, I, I think Fitbit has done more good mm -hmm. um, than any boutique concept in a long time. Yeah, be because it's kind of liberated people from having to be pay a fee somewhere, go to a timed class, uh, um, do anything in a contrived way. Yet it promotes people to be social with each other because people can link with each other in that community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And hold each other accountable. Yeah. And yeah. What are your thoughts on intermittent fasting and time-restricted feeding, things like that? And also on that, um, on exercising in a fasted state. So again, ev everyone can be successful on any diet. That's usually the first question when someone asks me about a supplement or a, a, a style of eating. I always say, would you want to tell your kids, skip breakfast, skip lunch, only between a two-hour window of the day, Mm -hmm. get all your calories in and then stop eating. I think number one, from a, a, a social perspective, it's really a difficult lifestyle to follow and not a good message. Mm -hmm. I think from a, a long-term metabolism perspective, it's just bad for you because you can store carbohydrates, you can store fat, you can't store protein in the body. And your body goes into a negative nitrogen balance when you've gone too long without having a protein. Mm -hmm. So we start cannibalizing our own lean tissue. Mm -hmm. fat and lean tissue. And so over an extended period of time, I think you, you, you mess up your metabolism. And we used to call it, and forgive me, we used to call it anorexia. Now we call when it people, gluconeogenesis. Yeah, right, right. gluconeogenesis, but as a byproduct of right. starving yourself. Exactly. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I do think that there's a, a rising number of eating disorders dis disguised as wellness. And I think mm -hmm. or we have a problem with that. But I mean, I think that for, for me, I, as a functional medicine practitioner, I just have patients lean into it for people that are using it as a tool, but they always have to find that grace and lightness. But I agree with you, it very well could be uh, thrown out of balance if someone's coming into it with a, a wrong perspective for it. And, and it's more so what they're eating that will make them successful during True. their fasting. So that goes back to, it's not the fasting per se that really is the, the key to the success. Mm -hmm. It's the composition of what you are eating during that time. Right, right. We um, eat a lot of sugar in the United States. It's no secret. Uh, I think the average is like 765 grams of sugar every five days yeah. um, compared to just like a, a hundred years ago, we had that in like a year. It's like, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what, that's a almost a pound of sugar. Yeah. Every five days per person, which Crazy. I can't do the math on that, but that's, you know, that's, I don't know, that's close to a hundred pounds of sugar, of like cane sugar per person in a year. Totally. And you came out recently with something called Sweet Cake, which uses an herb that I am a major fan of and inulin. Can you kind of explain what Sweet Cake is and what it does for us? Yeah, simply put, it's a breath mint. It's just a breath mint. Um, and once the breath mint's dissolved, you have minty, fresh breath, but also you are unable to taste sugar for up to two hours after you have the mint. And it came about because I am the only person in my family who does not have type one diabetes. Whoa. So I grew up in a household that had certain strict food <laughs> 
guidelines. And, um, and so I, I seeked uh, my secret stash of sugar and became a full-blown sugar addict my entire life and kind of lived this secret existence of writing weight loss books, you know, going on Good Morning America and telling people how to eat. And then I'd go off stage and in my gym bag, I would have a Nutella croissant waiting for me that no one knows about. Mm -hmm. And then every time I go for coffee, I, I pick my favorite coffee places, not based on how good the coffee is, but how good the pastries are at that coffee place. Mm -hmm. And it got so bad that I actually, because you know the herbs, I actually would take a Jemima dropper and put it on my tongue before I'd go to the coffee shop every time. Just, be, I'd still buy a pastry, but I would take a bite and spit it out. So, um, so I made a mint for myself and it was a combination of, uh, Jemima for people listening. It's, it's a, a flower. Um, it's also called Garmar, which is an, a Hindi word for sugar destroyer. Um, <laughs> and, uh, an inulin, um, which is a form of fiber that you get in artichoke or jicama or chicory root, um, and, uh, spearmint oil. And I made a mint that was so disgusting. It was so gross, but I needed it. I had to take it before I would go anywhere where I'd be tempted by sugar. Yeah. And it took me two years to make the mint taste better. And when it tasted good, I started using with my clients with great success. So cool. That's great. For you, like being in the industry for a while now and seeing all the trends come and go, maybe not a trend, but maybe a, um, a change in the, in the industry. What, what changes are you seeing that that's exciting you in the wellness world right now. I think the the availability of programming now on your phone is really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, I, I and this, this Peloton phenomenon is bigger than ever, and it just upsets me that people are sitting more than they've ever sat, mm -hmm. and their form of physical activity is sitting again. That blows my mind. Right. Uh, and locking their ankle in a in a, an artificial crank plane and grinding their knees and their hips over and over and over again in one single plane and not allowing their body to do what it wants to do. And mm -hmm. people developing torn labrums and hip problems in their twenties. So um, you love I, spinning basically. <laughs> I think we will look back at spinning. I'm not even kidding. We will look back at spinning the way we looked at um, step classes, you know, uh -huh, that, yeah. that have, yeah, I, I, it's, it's a, it's very bad for me. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm a cyclist and, and Will loves Peloton, but I, I actually agree with you because I, it's my, not diversification, my, no, it's not diver diversity. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What, I also think one of the huge values of cycling is that you're out in nature and you're outside and oftentimes you're doing it with friends. For me, it's church. Like I, I go mountain biking in the Santa Monica mountains and that's like the, the best thing in the world for me because I'm outside in the dirt, in the fresh air, you know, I'm riding with my friends and, and, and shooting the shit. I, the idea, I actually went to a spin class in New York last, the, a couple of days ago, and the idea of being in this tiny little room with 36 people inside a megalopolis with no lights and no natural light, you know, sweating, is, it's kind of my version of hell. So I, I, I don't love it. A hundred percent. You could not have said it any better. I, you know, Zach Galifianakis, the yes. comedian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Zach's an old friend of mine. And I remember when spinning first got big, him and oh, I were living in Oh, Vancouver. yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you're saying. Yeah, go and, ahead. And, and Zach's like, you know, he loved riding his bike everywhere. Yeah. He, he lost so much weight riding his bike around Vancouver and mm -hmm. it was great. And he said, take everything that's great about riding your bike. The fact that you get from point A to point B and you get fresh air and you all these beautiful views and the countryside and take all of it away and just put yourself cramped, like you said, like a sardine can in a hot room. Now, mm -hmm. scientifically, we know that exercising in a hot room Not good is, for you. <laughs> is horrible for you. And 
you burn less fat and less calories than even a room temperature room. Right. Mm, of course. Um, it, with, with deafening music and someone screaming at you about their own problems in their life. Although I do, I, you know, to, to play devil's advocate, I think it's great that it is getting people moving. I mean, if nothing else, it is getting people moving. But I do think there are better options. I'm curious to know what are your thoughts about kettlebells? Yeah, um, it's a tool in the toolbox. Okay. Um, and I think that uh, sometimes people become too enamored by one tool mm -hmm. and they build their entire uh, exercise program around it just because they love that one tool, but right. they end up really kind of shortchanging themselves because that one tool does not do everything well. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think swinging is always the best thing for the average consumer. Right. I think you're you're risking more injury than you are benefit for 99% of Americans. I think some people, kettlebells can be great. I think it's more of an advanced piece. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that swinging standing hip thrust move that people do over and over again, uh, I think it's very bad for 99% of Americans. Right. But 1% who do it well and don't have lower back problems and it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're speaking my language. I'm I'm a huge advocate for diversity and I love the idea of doing I mean personally I I work out six probably six times a week, six days a week, and it's usually something different every time. I try to make it as diverse movements as possible. So I, I'm totally in agreement with you. Mm-hmm. Am, am I okay on my Peloton if I just <laughs> like cut back a little bit? Now I feel bad about my Peloton. No, I, just... I, I look again if as long as you're yeah, you should cut back. I mean, that's, I mean, <laughs> Get some bell, I think bear that, that a little bit of a little bit of something's great. You want to do your Peloton yeah. once or twice a week, but as long as that's not your main form of exercise, right? And you, and no, I and could I could see it being tough on my knees if yeah. I did it more than well, I, I mean, do. pattern your movement hips, in general. Anyone, your hips, you, yeah, you get it stuck in one pattern, and it's so we talk a lot about transformation on the show, and as definitely the expert in his field, what are some action steps people can do to start to elevate their life, transform their life as far as health is concerned? Number one, um, if you have a Fitbit, great. If not, get one, whatever you have, use. Hit a daily step goal, okay? I tell my clients to take at least 12,000 steps a day and I, and I base that number on those 10 healthy other countries that I visited. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not the most scientific way in the world, but I just said, the healthiest people in the world, what are the, what's their daily habits? And not just one country, but across those 10 countries. And it was to walk 12,000 steps a day, over 11,000 steps a day. Mm -hmm. So I think that's number one. Um, and, and, and take small steps. So you know, for some people, when you wake up in the morning, you get dressed to go to work, before you leave to start your day, walk around the block once. And do that for a week. And then the next week, when you get to work, walk around the block once. And do that for a week. And then the next week, when you go home, before you go in your house, walk around the block once. And then to kind of add these on week to week, and next thing you know, you've tacked on an extra 4,000 steps a day without doing anything really different in your life. The second is sleep. You know, we didn't talk much about sleep, but that, that's sort of my passion lately. We are sleeping not just less, but worse than humans have ever slept, basically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, turn your phone off at least an hour before you go to bed and your laptop and your tablet. It's better to watch TV than all these things because it doesn't have the blue light right in front of your eyes and the alerts and the stress and the emails and the bills and your you know, cousin you haven't seen for years asking you for money. <laughs> um, and, and, and 
stop having caffeine in the afternoons. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if you need earplugs at night, use earplugs. If you need an eye mask, use eye mask. If you need ambient noise, use white noise. Whatever it is to sleep better, sleep better. Um, and uh, and unplug from technology at least an hour a day. Just shut it down. It's enough with social media. Just shut it down. And and have protein and fiber five times a day. Protein, fiber, five times a day. Three meals and two snacks. And at least four days a week, lift something, pull something, push something for at least 10 minutes, and that's it. That was a cool conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, for somebody who... who is training people for elite fitness to get ready for roles. It's really, it was interesting to, to hear how, um, well, one, how anti-fad he is, like mm-hmm. anti-fad diet, anti-fad uh, fitness. He's about doing things that are, that are sustainable mm-hmm. um, that you can maintain. But I just love this idea of just a couple of small changes, making tr- improving the quality of your sleep, yeah. walking more, and then, of course, getting in those five meals of fiber and, and protein, yeah. or I wouldn't say meals, but fiber and protein five times a day. Yeah. No, I, I think it's great. Coming where he's coming from, he's dealing with a lot of Hollywood, p- people that want to be fit, want to be healthier. I think his advice is on point, and I like that he's not into fads and trends and all of that. Obviously, from my patient base, dealing with autoimmunity has we have to find out what works for the people's right. body. Not everybody tolerates dairy. Nope. Not everybody tolerates grains. So it's nice to say have grains and dairy in moderation. Mm-hmm. Tell somebody with autoimmunity on that. So context matters. His, yep. his client base absolutely makes sense, 100%. He's on point. But we have to largely, uh, on an individual basis, find out what works for our body. Well, I do like that he kind of alluded to there not being one size fits all. Totally. And I think that's really important. Yeah. And, and even within his body reset diet, there's so many, you can do modifications for any, any of those ways of eating in there to make it work for you, which is great. Got a question you'd like us to answer? The Goop team is keeping a running list for us. So just hit them up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. At the end of every episode, we'll be answering a question from one of you guys. If you have a question about us or about men and wellness or really anything else is on your mind, just let us know. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies and ways to approach health and well-being. And I love to talk about food and cooking and, well, the reality is anything. I just love to talk. So send your questions over to the Goop team on Instagram or Facebook. As Goop likes to say, nothing is off limits. All right, guys, before we wrap up today, we're going to take a question from you guys. So I'll just jump right into it. We've got a question today that says, why do we crave bad food when we're in a bad mood? All right, well, you know, that's a pretty good question. Uh, My feeling is that there's a lot of emotional attachment to food, and oftentimes food, we talk about the idea of comfort food, uh, and ironically, I think a lot of the things we consider to be comfort food end up making us feel pretty uncomfortable. But emotionally, maybe they take us to a good place. So maybe it's the, the macaroni and cheese that our mom used to make or, or something that just reminds us of a, really, of a really safe place in our memory. So I think that's one of the reasons that we end up going to this idea of just of using food for a crutch. But I want to toss to you, Dr. Will, and get your, your, advi- your advice on this, your there's, way in. There's actually research to show that, that you've sent memory and t- taste memory. So when you had a, a good experience in the past with some 
dessert or you know, some junk food, uh, that's exactly what happens. It's, it's, it's triggering that same response. But when we're under stress, the same part of our body that that responds to stress in the brain also responds to cravings. Uh, so the more stressed we are, the more thrown off our hormones are going to be. And these foods are also, a lot of these junk foods are designed to be addictive as well. So when you are stressed, you want to, uh, your body innately wants to increase serotonin levels. And carbs, by their very definition, they are going to increase serotonin. And the refined carbohydrates will bring up serotonin quicker than like a sweet potato will. So it's like our body Un, you know, unconscious way of saying we want serotonin up quicker and that's really what it is. But the reality is you don't have to have refined carbohydrates to uh, increase ser serotonin levels. You could have something like sweet potato or have foods that have tryptophan, uh, things like salmon and green leafy vegetables. So those are some alternatives instead of the donut. Awesome. So you're saying that the donut is basically like a narcotic? It basically, it's an addictive food. It can be for people. That's it for today. Thanks for hanging out with us. Will and I would love to know what you think about Goop Fellas. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to goop.com slash goopfellas. And we hope you'll be here again next Wednesday. Talk soon.